This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is London FinTech Podcast, episode 151 brought to you in association with Smart Pension, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Tim Nicole, founder of Prima Dollar, to talk about the holy grail, which fintech is in search of, otherwise known as the road to profit. As we heard in LFP 143 late last year with Michael Pearson, based on his analysis of up to a decade of the top 100 UK fintech's accounts, companies house, only six are making a profit, the rest are losing money, and perhaps even more concerningly, as new co's are expected to lose money while investing for a while after starting, of course, creating products and infrastructure. More worryingly, for those fintechs over five years old, 78% are reporting increasing losses. Prima Dollar, so their website tells me, was founded in 2015 to provide a low-cost and practical solution to the financing of supply chains around the world. As we've heard in LFP 139 with Peter Cook of Prime Revenue, supply chain finance has long been sorted for mega co's. However, this leaves plenty of market space below the likes of Coca-Cola and Tesco to serve, and not all of it is served well. Despite only being founded in 2015, Tim must have been super busy, not least of which flying around the world, as Prima Dollar already has an astonishing 12 offices. London, actually I wonder whether that's Guildford, because I'm in Guildford at the moment. London, New York, Moscow, Stockholm, Hong Kong, Shanghai, Mumbai, Delhi, Chennai, Karachi, Bangalore and Dhaka. So in this globalising year for UK and for some of its leading fintechs, we might pick Tim's brains on running 21st century global business empires for what it might be inappropriate to call small co's given their global scale. However, smallish they are with staff numbers around 50, one third of whom are in the UK and two thirds of them abroad. And they're certainly a global co. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good afternoon, Tim. Thanks for joining me today. Well, hello, Mike. Thanks for having me. So, in six years, I was thinking about this when I was parking the garage downstairs in the capital of Surrey. I assume Guildford's the capital of Surrey. That in six years of doing the podcast, I've driven to a podcast once, but this particular week, I've driven to, to two in five days. So, it's funny how these things change. And it isn't the first day I met you because, actually, as we were just discussing, we did meet some 30 odd years ago when you were walking past my department saying, Give us a job, along with lots of other new graduates. Yes, probably I did, in fact, yeah. So uh, we have two parts of our lives which are in common because we both went to the same college at Cambridge. And then uh, I joined Climate Benson in the mid-80s when, uh, when you were already there. Yes, indeed. And on the former, they say it's always good to leave an impression. And I do actually remember to this day because there's a graduate milk round and you know, everybody gets shown around the bank. And I think that year, that year I was after buying one graduate or something like that. So it's just like a slave market. So you have all these sort of slaves come past you who are going to be put on photocopying, which did exist in those days, and, and, and making tea and coffee or something. I don't know what I mentioned this before, actually, but I've always found that making tea and coffee was an incredibly good predictor of how good somebody was going to be in the years later. Because all the graduates turn up having done a PhD on Nietzsche and been told they're here to save the bank and save the world and they know everything and all that kind of stuff, you know, the first thing to do is to sort of put them in their appropriate place. I, I think I was, I was pretty foul as a graduate, actually. Oh, I, was, right. I was extremely impressed with myself and, and rather yes. jumped up. And I think, that's, uh, I think that was probably your experience of I, me well, as well. I, I, saw, I, felt, I felt it in town. <laughs> anyway, I've, forgotten who, I've forgotten who I took in, uh, which we'll come on to. I've forgotten who I took in your um, place. But anyway, so the fixed income policy meetings every week, I always got the new graduate to sort of pour the coffee out. 
A, because they might as well, because they're at the bottom, and you can learn everything by doing it. Um, and B, also partly, because in the corner of my eye, I was watching how well they did it. The conscientious ones, who were interested in, the, in what the people wanted, turned out, unsurprisingly, in a customer-focused business, to actually do much better down the track. The ones who bitterly resented it at the beginning didn't do so well, actually. That's quite a test. Anyway, I remembered uh, you, because uh, you, you're seeing all these slaves come past. You've got to make sort of polite conversation, and you run out of something to say. And I just happened to look at the list, and I said, oh, you're at the same college with me. And you gave a brilliant speech for a sort of approximately quarter of an hour without hesitation repetition, deviation or drawing breath on how you're against nepotism and all this kind of thing. I was just being friendly, you see. Yeah, no, and my children still experience that very point of view. Ah, yes. Well, I can get my own back now because I can now tell the whole world that uh, actually, given that we just mentioned this, I know nothing, nobody from Queen's apart from one or two people who've been in the podcast, funny enough, who happened to mention it to me. Um, but you seem to know them all, actually. So uh, I was never in the world of nepotism and I'm not now, but you seem to have sort of uh, grown into the world of nepotism. Were you? Let's <laughs> <laughs> shut you up. And for, for listeners, Tim is quite hard to shut up. Actually, so I've, I've scored a victory already. That's, a, that's one nil to me. <laughs> Sorry, it's not a competition, is it? No, no, it isn't. But what do you? I know it isn't, but I'm winning. <laughs> <laughs> what are you getting at, Mike? <laughs> well, actually, talking of your your children, you, you um, and your other sort of uh, activities outside business, you say you've got more than one or two children. I have seven children, which uh, I've accumulated over. Do you accumulate children? But don't you? <laughs> <laughs> which have arrived over the last thirty years as a result of your actions. I was, I was explaining the mechanics of this beforehand, in case you didn't know. My eldest Emily is uh, the fintech and technology editor at City AM. So uh, fintech does seem to run in in the family blood, and she was previously at Altfi, which is another very well known fintech place. And then my uh, my eldest son actually has graduated graduated from Oxford and and got the university prize in in geography, doing much better at university than I ever did. What did you do at university? I did law. Oh, see. Oh. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, it's, it, I didn't want to be a lawyer though; too much photocopying. So William is doing, again, uh, very well, I think, compared to what I did in my, in my day and is, is already a research fellow in one of the Tory party's policy think tanks. So given that we've uh, touched on your career, you obviously started off by going to Britain's premier merchant bank in 86 or something, I think you said. So how have you gone that wonderful journey from the, sort of the, the end of empire and, and globe bestriding merchant banks to um, Guildford, where we are today? Well, in the 80s, Bright Young Things, hopefully that included me in those days, uh, didn't go off and build fintechs and go into technology-driven businesses. They went into investment banking and structured finance and financial engineering. And so Kleinwartz gave me the opportunity to work on some of the very early securitizations done outside the US. And in fact, uh, my first securitization, S&P didn't even have an office in London to rate the deal. I had to fly to New York to get it rated. And with that under my belt, I had extremely marketable skills. So... In 89, I set up my first company, which uh, was in structured finance and financial engineering and uh, became a gun for hire. So actually, me having sort of got a ball in the net to start off with, I think I'll, I'll give you a sort of a goal for that one, because I've always felt that given that I went indie in 1998, 22 years ago, that was quite a long time ago. I was one of the first indies because people didn't go indie in those days other than in the hedge funds. But if you were doing it a decade before, you were really ahead of your time. I mean, you, you said you did consulting, but I, I don't think I heard, I mean, I'm not joking, I don't think I heard the word consulting in the way it's used now in, in the 1980s. If you were running a business, you're supposed to run it. You didn't call in consultants to do stuff for you. So you, you, you were ahead of your time. We had extremely marketable skills. I had a, a business partner, so there were two of us, and uh, we used to charge ourselves out a partner of law firm rates at the age of 25. And we used to get paid that. And in fact, I think I went six or seven years before I had a day where I didn't actually get paid. Yes, those are the good old days, weren't they? So you're charging law firm 
weights for years and then what happened next? So why did you stop doing that? So, well, actually, it's quite tiring. I don't know how <laughs> you're finding it, Mike, but after we did it for about nine years and we made very good money, but at the end of the day, in some ways, it wasn't quite as satisfying as building something. We only got paid if we turned up. And, and so there, and, and, and therefore, we set up a company called Demica, which quite a few people will have heard of today. Which year was that? 98. With, and some of the guys who are here in Prima Dolla were with me and, and helped found Demica, actually, in 98. And Demica today is processing $100 billion a year of trade receivables. What was it doing in 1998 when you set it up? We set it up to, to provide back office processing services for banks and we were just ahead of our time I think in terms of the market wasn't in a position to either buy or appreciate what we were trying to do. Uh, it was a very tough gig uh, and obviously if you set up a, a business in 98, go through the dot-com boom and Y2K uh, trying to sell software into banks, uh, it's a pretty miserable process and we got market timing completely wrong. We were ahead of our time but the business finally found its feet I think under its current management in 2014 and as the team that Matt Reeford, the CEO at Demica, has built and what he's doing, they're fantastic. I mean, I'd like to claim a small amount of credit for the DNA. Uh, we, we were sort of there at the birth, but uh, through the teenage years and into adulthood, uh, great people have taken it on and, and built it into something really special. Yes, I mean, ha- having set up my own sort of software tech fintech firm myself in, in, in 1998, as I mentioned actually on a couple of podcasts earlier when I was talking about the book and getting into my career journey a little bit. That actually went quite fine for a while, but I too hit the city recession in, in the early 2000s, which was very tough for anybody, including the sort of the big uh, consultancy firms, and they let people go. And as I've said on the podcast before, that people misunderstand innovation largely because there's just loads of crap written online by people who don't know what they're talking about, you know, in general about everything. But, you know, you want to be careful for being innovative. You, you can be completely innovative innovative but I mean let's give an, I don't know give an example the Romans invented steam but it's about 2,000 years later until it was used as a steam Correct. engine you know so being innovative and well ahead of your time is a curse I don't think it's necessarily a curse too far ahead of your time it's not a path that's going to make you any money and moreover what what I learned from my days uh, with Demica which we, we built very quickly to uh, a decent sized company we had global multinationals as clients we were by ma- many measures very successful and yet this wasn't a business that was going to find its path to profit uh, anytime soon. And the lesson I learned from it is all about market timing. It's the market that makes you rich, and it's the market that makes a business successful, and it doesn't matter how brilliant you are. And it's a very humbling experience, actually, uh, because you go out there full of glory and passion for something that you believe in and that you think can change the way a lot of things work. And yet if the market isn't open for you, just forget it. Yes, unless you're a kind of... Steve Jobs or a Mr. Ford, it is very hard to radically change people's perceptions of what they want to buy. It's much easier to sell people, as I always say, a headache tablet for their headache. I think that's right, except that my guess is that it's always a two-way street and that if there isn't an opportunity or an opening or some kind of receptor through which, some door that you can walk through, pushing that door open is pretty well impossible. And so the big lesson I took into Prima Dollar is the lesson of market timing. Yes, well, I think one of the good things about having a background in, in FS, which many people in fintech don't per se, is simply this market timing. An action today can, can make you a fortune in 10 years' time or it can lose you a fortune. The action may be fine. I mean, buy BP shares, for example, but it really depends where the market is. And that's obviously a stock market metaphor, but it applies to everything else. It, it is actually about trying to make money now rather than positioning a business that is only going to be relevant or can make money if a load of other things change. Yes, so let's talk about this making money thing, the holy grail of fintech, as you 
called it, and just for full disclosure, is making billions something that you've got completely sorted at prima dollar so far? So well, we're not profitable, just like the other 94 companies in Michael Pearson's survey. And in fact, companies that raise capital usually aren't profitable, by the way, because you're raising capital because you need money to invest in what cash. you're doing. <laughs> you're raising money to, to invest in what you're doing. And in fact, we've been through three or four pivots in prima dollar trying to find the path to scale and the path to profit. And the good thing about trade finance and what we do is that it's wide open. It's, it's, um, it's a bit like the national lottery in that you've got to be in it to win it. And, and so participating in the market, experiencing and, and hoovering up the information flows, the data, the, the market reference points that we've been able to do over the last five years has allowed us to design a business, uh, which today has a very clear, which is scaling very fast now and has a very clear path to profit. And that's the key trick really, which is, navigating the choppy waters of the market space, observing and understanding the data points which you can see, and then very sharply and crisply defining your path forward. Yes, uh, I was remembering hearing or watching something about, oh, I don't know, something like microgrant lighting or hang gliding over huge distances like over the Alps and, and all this kind of stuff and all that. And of course, a large part of that was finding the winds that are going in your, your direction. You know, yeah. And when you're in one, whoa. Well, it's the old footballer thing about make the ball do the work. And that's the trick, actually. If you can identify your product market fit and you have the discipline to listen to what the market is telling you and not continually blame your sales guys for not selling enough or blame your customers for, for not being smart enough or, or blaming lots of people for the reason why you're not hitting your KPIs and your targets, then you've got a very good chance of finding a path forward. So in terms of your pivots, I don't know whether there's any instructive lessons for the listeners in terms of, you know, you set out to do A for a whole bunch of reasons and then A didn't particularly work and then you thought, well, I will try B and then you, I think you want to C. So the problem we've got in trade finance, in terms of what we're doing, is there's no handbook. It's not like mortgages or car loans. You should write a book. <laughs> <laughs> well, or build a company. I'll, I'll come it's to you for advice if I want to write a book. You give yeah. what you've been telling me about the torture and pain you've been through. Exactly. Simple, simple <laughs> advice. Don't write a book. Do a company instead. It'll be worth more money. Yes, exactly. The starting sort of model... I mean, in order to start Prima Dollar, when you don't really know anything about a market... So hang on, let's go back to the day before you started Prima Dollar. Why did you wake up that day and think, oh, I'll start Prima Dollar tomorrow and it will do X? What was the motivation? After I sold Demico, I went into investment banking because you can make a lot more money in the noughties as an investment banker than setting up and running a company. And then I went to Russia and I was in Russia for six years. And in 2014, the oil price fell, Russia became hit by sanctions, uh, the ruble collapsed. I needed to do something new. I was working for an oligarch running his tech portfolio. So I was immersed in running and managing tech businesses. And this was not one of these sort of oligarchs who carries guns around. He was a retailing oligarch. So he, was, he was a very entrepreneurial character, self-made, had three and a half thousand shops in his retail empire. Great guy. And uh, you know what? I mean, being in Russia at the end of 2014, that, that was a gig that had seen its day. You know, we're talking about market timing. That was a market for an expat that was... Now an ex-market, basically. Yes, I think the, the last time I was in Moscow was in the uh, early 2010s. I like Moscow. I like the Russians. I still have a flat in, in, in Moscow. It, uh, my wife is Russian. It's, uh, it's, I'm in love with Russia and in love with, with our life there. But, you know, we have to make a living. And so early 2015 needed to do something. Do I get a job? Or do I do a business that I've looked at over a number of years and thought that's right? And the ingredients in a trade finance business are there's no maturity transformation, which means you've got short-term assets, short-term liabilities. So, I mean, we keep touching on this and it always escapes my sort of tiny brain. For the listeners who aren't as intimately familiar with 
trade finance as you so in simple terms what is trade finance before we start talking about maturities and stuff like that we do a really simple thing when an exporter puts stuff on a boat we give him the money right that's and nice his and customer simple. can pay later that's it that, that's trade finance that they got it historically that's been something which banks did and so that's using what we would call a correspondent model so you have country a and bank a and country b and bank b and the goods move between the principals, the exporter and the importer, and the money moves between these two banks, and it's like a rectangle. And that's a really horrible, complicated model, and very expensive, lots of fees. Maybe 50 years ago, half of world trade ran like that. And today, the market share of banks in that product is less than 8%, and it goes down a percent every year. And so there's an opportunity to come in with a transactional product that's just better than what the banks are doing. And in fact, I'd say the banks have self-disrupted here. Right. So, so, so was this Model A that you started following? And, and if so, why didn't it work? The company started because I got, on, I, well, I got on a plane to Dhaka in Bangladesh, which is not a sort of well-known holiday destination. It's rather, <laughs> rather an uncomfortable location uh, full of great people and, and a really passionate and brilliant culture, but a very tough place to live and a very tough place to do business. And I started wandering around trying to find people who owned garment factories who wanted money. And so the first thing you'd think is, well, you know, money's going to be really expensive in Bangladesh, so we can charge big rates. And we can arbit- there's a great arbitrage here because their customers, Gap and Nike and Marks and Spencers, are going to be great credits. So I can charge 20% interest rates to factory owners in Bangladesh because they'll be really grateful that I'm turning up with the money. And I'll have the credit risk of Marks and Spencers, thank you very much. What a brilliant business, except it isn't like that. Because in reality, good factories in Bangladesh are extremely well banked. There's a lot of liquidity in Asia. And in fact, what we found with that first business was that we had negative selection. Meaning? So we just got all the risky stuff. The only motivation a factory owner ever had for giving us a trade was because he didn't like it. Yeah, yeah it's crap. He couldn't get rid of it anywhere else. <laughs> I'm not sure the buyer's going to pay. The shiny face mugs just turned up. You can yeah, have this rubbish. Lovely. My friend's got the good stuff. I mean, I used to see, I was a partner in PwC in Russia, and and I used to have all these uh, guys coming over, and you could spot the tourists a mile off, and and in a business sense, the tourists just get their pockets picked and sent back. And there we were, we were were the tourists. It happens time and time again. I mean, I remember going back to the 80s, it happened big time to Japanese firms that turned up in, in California to buy land or film studios or something. It's like, hey, sell it to those dudes. They won't know any better, kind of (laughs) thing. So this is something that the VCs call product market fit. Which is a nice euphemism for if you get it wrong, it's total fuck up. It is. And we were just always quick enough to understand where things weren't working. Yes. And we mentioned it before, actually, just in passing, Wonga, which doesn't get a mention these days, and it was sort of very naughty and um, disappeared and all that kind of stuff. But I sort of strongly remember being told that basically the engine of what they're doing, rather than how they were driving the darn thing, was that they chuck money all over the place in small amounts to give you lots of data and find out actually, mixing my metaphors, uh, oh, chuck seeds over there, they grow, chuck seeds over here, they die. Correct, correct. So the trick here is to, if, if you're in a, a frontier market, which we are, this is a blue ocean opportunity, is to go about finding the data points slowly and carefully enough so that you don't get killed by the bad data and the good data helps you redirect and refocus. Absolutely. And presumably, along with doing that, or before doing that, in fact, going back to having so many offices around the world, is that actually having the right people might help. And going back to you saying that you're a long-term listener of uh, London Fintech podcast, to which you own your, almost your entire success in Fintech, of course, is that one of the things that came out of that was that you, you attracted uh, one of the, uh, I think probably the first person to speak on the London Fintech podcast about trade finance, Guy Willans, who you exactly. sort of heard and you thought, he sounds like my kind of man. Yes, exactly. I heard him skillfully handling your interrogation. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I thought, he sounds like exactly the guy I He can work for me. (laughs) And so I'm pretty good at spamming people. So I spammed him a few times and eventually uh, persuaded him to come and talk to me. And at that point, we were by no means with a proven business model at all. So he set me a series of hurdles that I, you know, things I needed to do. And at that point, he was working for Trade River. used to be sort of medieval stories where the princess would set the prince on things and get hand of marriage. It was a bit like that. And it took me seven months to organise and deliver the KPIs that he said he wanted to see. Because, you know, we've all got mortgages and children and everything else. You know, this isn't a a trivial discussion. Yeah, so, and he joined us in February 2018. And as you said, I owe nearly all my success in the London, (laughs) as a fintech, to the London Fintech podcast. I won't won't give you a hard time now. And although Guy continually berates me about how much equity he's got and how little he's paid, we owe a great amount of our success to his contribution. It's very much a team effort. And going back to these offices around the world in, in Moscow's and Mumbai's and Hong Kong's and Chennai's and, and, and all these kind of places, again, going back to old Kleinwatts, which had sort of imperial stuff all over the place, as I saw from a management group management level in the 90s, it makes a hell of a lot of difference if you've got a good local man, and they were mostly men then, compared to somebody who's a divvy. So you've got to find the right partner who knows the local markets really well. And uh, you, know, you gave the example of Moscow. That's easier said than done. And plenty of sort of big firms fly to somewhere, go to Moscow, you know, go to some head-turn to get given somebody, and then find out two or three years later, oops. It's all about how you design and build the business. And we're in the business of selling money. So we have to design that business very carefully. I mean, the reason why the head office is here in Guildford is because where I live. I like walking to work. And Guy actually only lives a few miles away. So we both have basically no commute. And the heart, mind, brain, soul of Prima Dollar sits here. And what we use the international office network to do is basically customer management and account management and compliance. So how do you go about, I mean, just going back to this sort of global scale, which a couple of episodes ago we, we discussed with the Lord Mayor, obviously in the Brexiting year, and many fintechs, but also for the country as a, a whole, it, we need to go back to being more international. I mean, it is easier said than done, clearly, to recruit a dozen people around the world who are really trustworthy and know their stuff. I mean, you don't just sort of do that over a Skype interview for half an hour, do you? So when you do business in an emerging market, it's a who question, not a what question. Who are you, not what are you doing? And that's because these are, uh, in many of the markets we work in, these are hierarchical cultures where actually age and experience counts for a lot. I should move there. <laughs> <laughs> and grey hair as well, though, Mike. Oh, dear. I'll get, get a wig. <laughs> the, you know, these markets do work differently to us. And so when we are working in a new market or going into a new country, and we've, in the last year, we've, we've entered you know, India, Pakistan, the last two years, India, Pakistan and China. What we tend to try and do is take a lot of advice from a lot of people who we know. We have good personal networks. We typically try and organise a senior non-exec as pretty much the first person we try and find who is a non-exec who we then use to help us hire individuals who are going to do the work. So, for example, in India, we have an absolutely excellent fellow who, who's, who's, been on, who's been retained by, he's not actually a director, but he's a, he's a very senior advisor for us. Uh, he's helped us build our Indian business. Fantastic chap, worth every cent that we pay him. And he continues to help us uh, manage our Indian platform because he's got the local connections and local networks. And we found him through some, Engl- Indian, uh, some English connections. So it is all about networking, in the end. We rarely hire people who aren't known somehow to us, even if it's a brand new country. So one thing we discussed a few shows ago with Anish Varma from Air, who had had business in lots of countries and lived in 11 himself, was this whole 
challenging issue of localization versus globalization. So Facebook gives us pretty much the same product around the world. It localizes it in terms of uses different language here or different language there. Uh, a Revolut might do something similar. Whereas other businesses have to be heavily localized. And most fintechs, and I assume in the business that you're in, are a combination of two important things, one of which is very easily forgotten, which is the human beings, along with the computers. I, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit. So you don't use human beings, you don't use computers. No further questions. Yes or no? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, um, yes. No, 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 no. The witness may stand down. Um, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> of course we use computers and human beings. There we go. Me, thank you. Thank you. No further questions. Let me collapse five years' worth. Yes, but I think I'm going to tell you something now that is a different journey to the one you imagine. Let me collapse five years' worth of learning that we've had about how to do this. So basically, the path to profit is also the path to scale. How do we scale a trade finance business? How do you scale any business? And generally, the answer is you've got to sell more. And how do you sell more? Do you increase inquiries or do you boost conversions? So inquiries, that's the traffic coming through the door in the top of your sales funnel. How do you get more of that coming? You want to scale. How do you get more of that coming in the top? And then in terms of what's coming out the bottom, how do you convert more of that? Or should you convert more of that? Now, you were head of risk at a, at a global bank in a, credit, in a credit business. I mean, we don't hold the credit risk. We, we shed the credit risk. So we're a balance sheet light model here. But converting more is very dangerous. So actually, it's all about inquiries. You want good clients. You don't want more clients. You want good clients. You, d you don't want more clients if they're going to be bad clients. Going back to fixed income a little bit after I sort of uh, seen you um, a few years later, uh, I was the only person in investment management to sack a client because we had a client and he was a complete pain in the ass. just took up so much time. And then said, well, thank you very much for your services, but I think you'll go somewhere else. We have done that too. I mean, you get the, one of the things I tell the guys here is you get the clients you deserve. So uh, at the end of the day, this path to scale is something that's very, very difficult to crack, and it's where nearly every business founders. Because if what you do is you just increase conversion, you get the clients you deserve. So how do you manage to increase inquiry? Well, you can throw money at increasing inquiries, but that's a zero-sum game, because sooner or later you reach a steady state. Quite a few fintechs seem to send us snail mail through the post to Bridget and I, just because we own sort of little micro-companies for ourselves. And uh, I won't mention the names, um, but whenever I see names... Uh, of the, these firms coming through and get many, 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 you know, I think, oh gosh, that's not a good sign. And for example, actually, one of them, well, it is, it is, I'm sure everyone gets this, is from Funding Circle. You know, they were lending me, sort of wanting to lend me a fortune and that, with no turnover business. And I thought, well, that's not a very good sign. So a couple of years ago, about a year ago, I was just, oh, well, you've got one as well, as well today. Yes, and they're not doing too well in the stock market last time I looked. No, and I'm not surprised, actually, because I think they're a speciality finance company with some tech. Yeah, and they're not filtering very much if they're sending to me. But it's not even about the filtering. The question is, if you've got a finite addressable market space, you can only get more inquiry by throwing more resources at it and spending money. And that's a, that's a game of diminishing returns. And sooner or later, your business will reach a certain size and won't grow anymore because the new business you're winning is just matching the attrition that you're experiencing. So how have you managed this increased number of inquiries and then convert the right number, or right percentage, or the appropriate ones, which is obviously so, the challenge? So there are some people who do this really well, and we are doing the same thing. So let's take Klarna, let's take Oak North, let's take uh, Tink, Mambo, these kind of guys. We do something very, very well that not many people can do, and that is process and manage trade as a single player, as a single point between an importer and exporter. So none of this correspondent stuff. We, it, there's only us. 
our trades are triangular. So factory in Dakar, flog some trousers to Marks and Spencers in Guildford. We handle both ends of that trade. So there isn't a bank in England and, and a bank in Bangladesh. There's just us and we do both ends. And we have achieved a number of things. First of all, ingredients in Prima Dollar. Number one, we are truly supranational with a single product on a single set of documents. So I don't need to localise. It means that we have clients today in over 30 countries and we couldn't have clients in 100 countries. We finance exporters already in 12 countries. So number one, we've cracked that problem of localization by not having to do it because of the engineering that we've done in our business. So going back to the, the human beings and the tech, just to sort of pick that apart, as I understand uh, what you're saying is that the tech, and I'm using that in the broadest sense, using legal documents and all this kind of stuff, not just the computers now, that you've been successful enough, despite all the different legal regimes around the world and all that kind of jazz, that keeping it sort of simple and very schematic, you basically got one document which somehow kind of works everywhere, oversimplifying it, which means that your marginal cost of going into a new country is pretty low on that front. Actually, not oversimplifying it. That's okay. exactly what we do. Well, brilliant. Well, it's even better then. Yeah. So that the incremental cost of, of adding a new country, you go into Burma tomorrow, isn't very much on that side. But the localization point to your point about sort of DACA and all that, and finding the right local people, is that the localization cost, I assume, is relatively linear to the number of countries. So you want a good, for example, as you've got in India, you know, non-exec and you know, a couple of local people looking after the customers. So when you said that the path to profitability is to scale up, um, of course, we know, we all know plenty of ad banks are a good example. Like, they're scaling up and scaling up and scaling up. But unless your expenses rise slower than your profits, you get into the Michael Pearson trap, which is, oh, yes, they're growing fast and losing ever more money. OK, so let's, let's talk about the second ingredient that we've got, and then we'll explain to you how we have split revenues away from costs so that revenues go up but costs don't go up by nearly as much, which is the measure of a business that could, in my view, and using technology to do it, which is how you become, in my view, a fintech. So the second very important ingredient to allow us to get scale to work is productization. And that is creating a product that is simple enough for other people to sell. Yes. So three or four years ago, we had spreadsheets everywhere. We ran around trying to solve customers' problems and we offered them solutions. It's kind of consultative selling. Well, it's how most financial companies work uh, because you're desperate for business. So you continually do whatever it takes, do whatever it takes to get yourself moving. And what we did very much with Guy's help, actually, is productize. So we reduced what we did down to a, a very, very bare-bones product with some parameters, which meets 95% plus of customer needs in the markets, in the global trade market. And then we got rid of all the spreadsheets. Our systems actually produce our documents. So we work like a retail bank, not like a B2B. So we are like a retail. We don't accept amendments to documents. Our documents are standard, and they're produced by the system. And it's transactional, which is the third key ingredient. So what have we got? We've got a supranational model. We've got a very standardized and simple product, and we've made it work transactionally. What that means is that it's a bit like your credit card. You can turn up with your shipment and get funded. You don't need to sign complex facility agreements and have long-standing historic relationships. There's no complexity in the relationship. So the next step then is how then to take that product to market. And the answer is not by having lots of sales officers and hiring lots of people and doing, giving Mr. Google lots of money. It's actually by doing what the Klarners and Oaknorths of this world do, which is inserting our product into other people's customer bases. So in the same way that you go to a garage, when you buy a car from a garage today, you typically buy them finance with the car. You're getting a single customer journey and walking out with something costing you £100 a month. At the point of need, as it's called. 
sold at the point of need, but you also can't see the join anymore with PCP and all these modern car finance products. You can't see the join between the buying of the car and the funding of it. It's a single discussion. We can do the same with trade finance. So with trade finance, what happens today is you go to your shipping line or your logistics partner and you upload your shipping notice on his portal to say, please take away the container. And you walk down the road to the bank to have a discussion about the funding. So we've got an amazing opportunity here because we've got world trade is owned by two different communities. It's owned by the logistics industry who don't offer finance. DHL, for example. DHL, Maersk, Hapag Lloyd. And all these cargo airplanes that fly out late at night with no windows. Exactly. And, and all these enormously long container vessels with uh, ships with the container Mile lines. Long, with, yeah. yeah, exactly. And then we've got the, the same communities also owned by the banks. And the banks don't really don't have a transactional trade finance product today. So what we can do with tech is take our credit dashboards and deal wizards and trade wizards and insert them into the portals of the logistics players. Because they desperately want to offer finance so to their customers. You're, more, you're becoming more B2B then? Becoming more B to B to B. B to B to B. Yes, yeah. yes, ex- exactly. So, I mean, I'm mentioning this name. I have no idea whether they're friends of yours or not. And I don't want to know if it's not relevant. But, for the sake of argument, so Mr. DHL are over the road. You go and chat them up. You have a nice lunch in a pub on Friday, and they go, "Oh yeah, you can do all our global trade." And you come back and go, "Hey, I've got good news, guys. We're doing all the stuff for DHL or something like that." And then you're sorted because you've made quotes one sale, and that turns into a million little sales. Or billion or whatever. We worked this out about six months ago, so this can't be done overnight. Yeah, I spotted that. It probably takes more than one lunch with DHL to get the global business. So what's, what's needed is to take your very, very standard product and build a digital customer journey of your own, but to do it through an API layer. So these are things that the, the techies, and I'm not a techie, but they call them headless and restless APIs. So it's, it's like a toolkit, which a third party engineer, a data engineer, who's running, for example, building the portal in a logistics company can use to insert our trade finance into his customer journey on a full white label basis. So our name is invisible. We're like the Visa or MasterCard processing the stuff and funding the stuff in the background. And so as part of that process, we've recently signed a deal with a global shipping line, for example, who have more than 5% of global trade carried on their vessels. That's in the hundreds of billions of dollars. They don't offer trade finance today. Tomorrow they're going to. And they're going to be offering our trade finance. We do one tech integration with their portal and our trade finance product is on the desk of 5% of global trade. And in that product, how does your credit assessment work again? So on the back end, we have two operational modes. We have some clients already where all we do is the processing because that's valuable by itself. So it's a bit like a SaaS model, software as a service, where we simply provide the tech platform, but we're dealing with someone who's got the money and wants to take the risk. So that could be, for example, a big retailer, could be a bank. And then we have another whole category of people like the logistics companies and the marketplaces who haven't got the money and don't want to take the risk. So we have a back-end credit team and a credit limit systems here. We're plugged into the global credit insurance markets and we have a very uh, formal process uh, for doing credit. It's pretty fast. So we have these two models and we call that FAST, finance as a service. So if you wanted trade finance today... There are two ways you could get it from us. You could use your own money and we'll just do the hard work for you. We have all the tech and the IP and the documents and the transactional things and the, the APIs for the customer journey. And then we have, the, sorry, this sound like an advert, Mike, I'm very sorry. But we have the, the other part of our business, which is the fast part, which is what a lot of people actually need. Good. 
Right, okay, so we've covered quite a, a lot there, Tim, and clearly you guys have been working hard at that on an interactive basis and, uh, and working your way towards a model. You've given lots of ideas and, and lots of clues and lots of other things that other people can think about. If we were trying to sort of just wrap it up in terms of where Prima Dollar are today, why you're so bullish today, and you have been honest about your career over the last 30 years. I mean, sometimes things go well financially, but it's a bit tedious, not really building anything. You know, other times it doesn't go as well as you might. So how would you pull all that together in terms of what you think is your recipe for having created a very interesting business with great opportunities uh, at the moment? How, how do you condense all of what we've been talking about? So, I mean, there are a couple of very simple messages here. Number one, listen to what the market is telling you and don't look for excuses in your resources, your sales force, your, your product design and so on. The market will drive your success or failure. And then lesson number two is listen to a lot of podcasts, I would actually say, because the business model we have today has, is only in existence because of the amount of study that I and colleagues have done of what other people are doing and successfully building unicorn businesses. So in many senses, we're, not, we're, we're applying a now what is now a very proven strategy in other markets to resolve what would have given us indigestion in trade finance. We would have reached a certain size and then we would have stopped. And there are other players in our markets, fintechs, other companies of our size, who've simply stopped growing. And we're powering now way past them because we've taken a completely different strategy. Yes, I was pausing because I remember a lunch I had recently with a fintech that had paused. And I think one of the reasons might well be a lack of what you might call meta-creativity. And having immersed myself in, in a world of information in, in, in a domain for the last couple of years, and seeing the fintech revolution happening for several years, it, it seems to me that one of the issues that some of the leading edge people are getting around, which you've clearly done, is to solve what I call the meta issue thing, which is there are loads of fintechs out there doing stuff. As I said before, we kicked off actually. One of the things I'm not so keen on, I mean, if anyone listens to the show, great, I'm very pleased. But sometimes I meet people say, oh yes, well, no, I, I'm you know, really busy, don't always listen to them. But I always listen to something in my sector or subsector. And I always say to them, oh, that's good, but do you know what? You're going to know more, you should know more than everything's going to be fit into the podcast. And actually, just from my perspective, from a creative perspective, I'd much rather founders, uh, if they just going to listen to some of them, listen to something that's not in their sector, because you can pick up ideas from here and there. And as you say, listening to a whole bunch of podcasts and all that, you know, it might be like panning for gold. You might spend a sort of day and, and, and not get very much. But... Once you start pulling them all together, a bit like me speaking to 80 people on the board, after a while, you start to build a picture, you start to build a map that no individual actually has. And all you've done is this meta search for information. If you search for it on Google, you'll get something that's kind of, let's just call it one dimensional. That's right. But by listening to different things, you've, you build up something three dimensional, you've then got a three dimensional model. And you, and nobody else has got that model. It's like my book, nobody else has got that because they haven't done the meta search. And, and from what you're saying, nobody else has, has got where you are in trade finance, which is a very old business. Going back to this wonderful book, it mentions the fact that we've got documentation of it 4,000 years ago in ancient Assyria. It ain't a new business, but you have found a new way to do it. We have found a new way to do it. And it's large. I mean, we're just taking what the, the technology that's driving open banking and applying it to trade finance but you can't really apply it to the old-fashioned trade finance because the product's too complicated. It's not suitable for that kind of open banking, API, connectivity model. But once we had understood what was going on in open banking and we could see what people were building, and that's the Tinks and the Mambos of this world, the fantastic uh, stuff, and we could say, well, hold on a second, we could do that, but we could apply it in our sector. And we've got the luxury of a sector where there are people with enormous client bases who want to offer trade finance 
this API open banking model. It gives us the clue. That's how you do it, guys. Absolutely. And there was a number of things there, but we were running out of time to go into them. I mean, you know, one of them is that the huge benefits of standardization, which has taken me quite some time to find out myself, in that having been in indie for sort of uh, 20 years, it's very easy to slip into quite a, quotes, consultancy model where you see somebody today and you solve their problems, you see someone tomorrow and you solve their problems, and it's, it's a little bit similar and a little bit different. I mean, having this conversation with Bridget, who's got a smart working training course for the uh, civil service, which is working very well, and, and I keep leaning on her to not keep changing it every time so much. And just to give a simple example of my own experience, is when it comes to the podcast. I mean, the podcast has been sponsored for four years now. When I started in terms of, you know, making it happen in the first place, I'd have different conversations with different people, you know, and so sponsors don't just get the sort of the, the brand message in the show, but they get my help offline and spend ages customising it and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I was looking at changing the price, depending on a whole bunch of parameters and so bloody complicated. Years later, it's very simple. And I say, well, look, you know, there's two things. Firstly, I don't just take money. You know, I need to be convinced that the sponsors are a good firm. I'm not going to put somebody out there that I wouldn't personally trust. Secondly, it's a grander show, right? That's it. It's so much an easier conversation then because then people can say yes or no. And you don't then have to have sort of, you know, weeks of conversation, or oh, maybe this, or can we do that, or can we? No, no, it's, you know, minimum run of six months, grander show, that's it, well, thank you very much. And you get to yes, no so much faster because one thing that kills B2B type stuff, as you all know yourself. And this happens to the tech fintechs that try and sell into banks. You can be talking for months and months and months and months as a part of a sales process. It's much easier to say, look, this is what it is, yes or no. Standardization and the discipline that it brings is everything here. Because with a standardized balance sheet, with a standardized mix of assets, it's much easier for me to get banks to fund it. And it's much easier for me to get insurers to insure it because they know everything is the same. There are no dark corners of our business with smelly stuff in. Because the problem with most businesses is you've got your head in your fridge and and you've got your feet in the fire. And the average temperature might be fine, but what kills you is the stuff at either end. And that's the stuff you can't see and that's what makes you nervous. What we've learned and and the disciplines that we've imposed on ourselves is this standardization, productization model. It makes it easy to sell the product. It makes it easy to manage the funding and it makes it easy to manage the risk. And it then makes it easy to scale because other people can sell it. Absolutely. And you can get the price down. So, for example, if you want me to come into your offices next week and talk to you for an afternoon about the board, we'll spend ages asking about what you want, ma da da It'll cost so much, but you can have a book and here it is. Yeah, no, no, exactly. The book's good value, of course. The book's very good value, of course. But it applies to everything else. And um, at the highest level, this is, uh, you know, and again, for the sort of younger people who may not be so aware of this, consultancy businesses generally can't ever sell themselves for more than just sort of the earnings. You know, there's no real PE you apply, by and large, simplifying things. Whereas product businesses, unsurprisingly, sell for quite a lot. And that's purely because the mechanics we're talking about here. You know, a product is a standard. Okay, I mean, my phone, there's several varieties of it, but actually there's only several varieties and they sell millions. So especially in the tech world, getting this productization sorted is important. I emphasize the human being aspect of it going back to sort of globalization because there are very few people, Tim, that have got your international experience of doing business around the world and haven't done business in a a few countries myself, I know that there is a a certain amount of cultural localization required around the world when you turn up in in different markets, they have different cultures, they do things in different ways and you know if you're the sort of uh, unquiet American you go around the world trying to do it the same way, it doesn't always work. Anyway, right, before we go into that, let's wrap up the show. I'd like to thank all the listeners out there. I'd like to thank my brand partners of the podcast who are busy going global. I shall have to get Will to amend this uh, message sometime and tell me 
or how many globals he's doing. Smart pension and fast, secure and free and globalising. Check out their UK workplace pensions at autoenrolment.co.uk. Right, Tim, so you have managed to slip in once or twice at the mention of Prima Dollar <laughs> within the rubric of uh, the, whole, the holy grail of uh, making a profit. I don't know whether, there isn't, whether there's anything you haven't actually said about Prima Dollar. If there is, very briefly, you can let the audience know. And in particular, do you need more sex, drugs and rock and roll? And therefore, anybody's got those should be checking you out, contacting you and that sort of stuff. Well, thank you, Mike. And um, I mean, I, I, I guess if I was summarising and wrapping up where we feel we are and where we're all going here, I actually think trade finance is, is its time has come. It, it is a neglected part of the fintech space. It is a really exciting market right now. And that's not just because guys like us are, are busy trying to nail it down. It's also because the tech is now arrived that allows us to do some really smart things. And it's because the product designs and, and product proof points and the maturity of the insurance market, the maturity of the funding market, lots of important things are all suddenly coming together in one place. And so in terms of, you know, what do we want? More sex, drugs, and more? Like all of that, we're very happy to talk to all sorts of people about what we're doing, um, marketplaces, logistics uh, companies, and banks. What do you need more of over the next two or three years to help you get to where you want to get to? Sure. So one of the things that businesses like ours have a thirst for is equity capital. We haven't got any problem with funding. We are funded way below the rates that most people in the funding markets want to offer us money at. So we have the funding parts of our business sorted out. And that's also because we have the insurance parts of our business sorted out. So we lay all the risk off. But as all companies that are growing very quickly with global opportunities, we need funding on the equity side. You know, our path to profit is very clear. We should be famous last words, who knows, but we should be profitable within a year from here. We've got the relationships in place now and the contracts in place now to deliver that. But in fact, even next year, we'll be, we'll be raising a, a Series B or a Series C round. And that's because this is a global market. And global markets take quite a lot of infrastructure and effort to get behind. Yes, indeed. I mean, going back to this, how long it takes to get profitable, you have to build an infrastructure first. The certain finite cost of that. <laughs> you raise capital because you're going to spend money faster than you're going to make it, for sure. That's otherwise, why would you do it? And the great thing about our business is that we should be able to get to profitability before we need to get any very big checks. We are in enough South Asian countries now to scale up sufficiently to get to profitability just in those countries. But at the same time, this is a global opportunity. So you wouldn't stop there. Excellent. Well, that's been very interesting. And there's obviously a lot in the trade finance stuff without re-wrapping up about that material. Going back to the LFP theme for 2020, I'm very pleased to hear that there are UK fintechs who are out there and globalising, as I've said once or twice on the show before, in about 1600, England started going out there and globalising, and there's a long tradition of it, and we live in a small rainy island, so why wouldn't we go somewhere nicer? And the Lord Mayor was talking about similar things as well. So I'm very pleased that we're going out and facilitating business, which is where we all started in 1600, before it turned imperial and more sort of 1800, a couple of hundred years later. But Britain was the ones who invented free trade per se. And in particular, at a more 21st century level, I really like your approach that you outlined about this meta search, for the want of a phrase, because that's the first time I've heard it so explicitly. Although I know, you know, there are a number of founders who listen to the podcast, but almost the way you outline it, it's almost a deliberate algorithm. And it's certainly one that I would recommend myself to people, which is your any walk of life, I don't know, with ballet or anything like that, is that just listen to as much stuff you can almost non-judgmentally, just take in as much input as you can. And some of it's going to stick and some of it will coalesce in your mind and will just create a unique shape that isn't there before. I mean, you can't do everything just via 
Googling, I mean, if you Google stuff, you will get what's known already. But to create what isn't known yet, but will be known tomorrow or the day after, the process you've described is excellent. And I think it's going to be a process that's going to last for a long, long time, given that we live in the information age. And so, you know, meta, meta, meta stuff will get higher and higher. So thank you very much for that, Tim. I wish you every success in the future. And I hope all the business and capital comes your way. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for listening. If you have any challenges or needs with your unlisted company board, get in touch with me at mike at londonfintechpodcast.com. We could sit in a vendor all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride To come away from the city the tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city But with the faces so grey With the pain of the Mountains and the trees Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fit in between the earth and the sky Kiss the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight.